Genesis 42. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 5 this morning. Genesis 42. This morning we're going to look at how God awakened the conscience of Joseph's brothers to bring them eventually to repentance. One man who was obviously struggling with his conscience to put it to rest wrote the government saying this, I cheated on my income tax. I can't sleep. Here's a check for $75. If I still can't sleep, I'll send you the balance. One person said this about their conscience, your conscience may not keep you from doing what is wrong, but it sure can keep you from enjoying it. Jiminy Cricket, the great philosopher, said this, and always let your conscience be your guide. But is that true? Is that a true statement? Well, we're going to look at that today, this morning. When I was in the Air Force, before I became a Christian, I had a friend in the motor pool. His name was Fred Funk. Can you imagine going through life with that name? Fred Funk. Fred was a mechanic, and he had a huge set of tools provided by the United States Air Force. And one day, Fred told me that he could get me a brand new set of tools and a toolbox. Absolutely, well, he was going to charge me a little bit. But he was going to get them from the military and charge me like 40 bucks for this brand new set of tools. Now, he probably wanted to stay in tight with me since I was a cook in his unit. And when we'd go out into the field, I could provide him extra food. So Fred stole the tools, gave them to me, and I took them to my parents' house and left them there. Now, when I would go home, I'd occasionally use the tools, and my conscience didn't bother me too much. But when I used the tools years later, after becoming a Christian, that's when my conscience seemed to come to life. It reminded me that these tools were stolen and that they needed to be returned. Now, I would sit there in my mind and argue back with my conscience and try to rationalize saying, you know, I've been out of the Air Force for two years. Who am I going to send them to? Well, finally, my conscience won out, directed by God's Spirit, and I sent the tools back to my sergeant who was in my unit. Now, I don't know if he ever returned them back to the motor pool, but we, we won't worry about that. If I never would have become a Christian, I probably still would have those tools today. My conscience was relatively quiet when I stole those tools. The only thing that awakened my conscience was God's Spirit directed by God's Word. And so this morning, let's look at the first point, which is the conviction of conscience. This is the Word of God. Now Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt. And Jacob said to his sons, Why are you staring at one another? He said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us from that place 
so that we may live and not die. Then ten brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, I am afraid that harm may befall him. So the sons of Israel came to buy grain among those who were coming, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Now at this point in the story, our focus goes, because we've been, we've been going through this series on Joseph. Well, now the focus goes from Joseph to Joseph's brothers and how they had sinned against him and how they had also sinned against God. And it's probably a good hunch at this point that the brothers were still unbelievers. And in this story, we're going to see how God um, um, affects their conscience through the trial of want to eventually bring them to repentance. Now notice when the topic of Egypt comes up, the brothers start staring at each other. You know, it's probably like this. Their eyes got really big, you know. You've done that before, right? Your eyes get big, and then you start going, you know, they probably started talking in Hebrew to each other going, oh my word, right? And so they were, their conscience was being pricked. And so Jacob asked, what are you doing? (laughs) It's like, what are you staring at each other? It's like the three stooges knocking them in the head. What are you doing looking at each other like that? And the simple answer could have been conscience. Conscience. One worldly proverb says this, never speak of rope in the house of a hangman. The only word the brothers needed to hear to awaken their conscience was Egypt. Because Egypt was the place where they sold Joseph. And you remember, they sold him for 20 pieces of silver to the Midianites. And the last thing they probably remembered was Joseph pleading with them not to do this. But they squelched that. And they buried it in the back of their minds. They tried to forget about it, probably. And then when the word Egypt came up, it reminded them of their sin. They wanted to bury their guilt in the back of their minds, but fortunately for them, their conscience had a shovel. If the word Egypt never would have been uttered, It's most likely that these men would have died in their sin, but God had another plan for them, which was to awaken their conscience through a severe trial in their lives. So, what is the conscience? What is the conscience? Listen to what Romans 2, verses 14 and 15 says. It says this, For when the Gentiles, who do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternatingly accusing or else defending them. The conscience, to a certain extent, is a divinely given moral compass that helps us to judge our thoughts our words, our deeds, and either commends them or condemns our actions. So, 
like I asked before, is our conscience always correct? Is Jiminy Cricket right when he sings and always let your conscience be your God? Is that right? Is that true? No, it's not. You know why? Because the Apostle Paul says that some in Corinth had a weak conscience because it had been wrongly trained. Let me give you an example of this. There was a lady years ago, before I even got to this church, so this was um, more than 18 years ago, she was in this church and her husband left her and went to live with another woman while they were still married. He left her, went to live with another woman, and so this woman continued to stay married to this man even though he was living with another woman. She refused to divorce him because she was told and she had been taught that divorce was wrong no matter what. Always wrong. So her conscience, being weak, held her captive to this marriage. She refused to divorce him. So year after year after year, it continued on. Until finally, somebody convinced her from the Scriptures that what she was doing, she didn't have to do. She didn't have to stay bondage in, but to bondage to her weaker conscience. Now, I'm not saying that this woman should have gone against her conscience and divorced her husband. But what she should have done is gone to the Word of God to see if what her conscience was telling her was true. Well, later she did divorce and she remarried, but it was a long time after this adultery had happened. And she was held in bondage for all that time to her weaker conscience when she could have lived in freedom. So what is the answer to a weaker conscience? It's to know the Word of God so that your conscience is no longer weak but strong on the subject. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians when they were struggling with the idea of eating meat sacrificed to an idol. Now what was going on is there were certain pagans that were doing this temple practice where they would take animals and sacrifice them, and then they'd take the meat from the animals and they would sell them in the marketplace. Now, if a Christian would see that, they would say, no way, I can't eat that meat because it's been sacrificed to an idol with a weaker conscience. So what Paul did is he taught them, how can you have a stronger conscience in this area? And he said this in 1 Corinthians 8, 4. He said, therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. What was Paul telling them? He was telling the people with a weaker conscience, look guys, there's no such thing as idols. You're worried about these idols that this, this meat has been, this animal has been sacrificed to. There's no such thing as idols. There's only one God and he is the creator of the world and when he created everything, he created it as good. Listen to what one author says about the conscience. The voice of a Christian's conscience is the instrument of the Holy Spirit. If a believer's conscience is weak, it is because he is spiritually weak and immature, not because of the leading of the conscience is weak. Conscience 
is God's doorkeeper to keep us out of places where we could be harmed. As we mature, the conscience allows us to go to more places and to do more things because we have more spiritual strength and better spiritual judgment. A small child is not allowed to play with sharp tools to go into the street or to go where there are dangerous machines or electrical appliances. The restrictions are gradually removed as he grows older and learns for himself what is dangerous and what is not. God confines his spiritual children by conscience. And as they grow in knowledge and maturity, the limits of the conscience are expanded. We should never expand our actions and our habits before our conscience permits. So how are you doing in the area of conscience? Do you have a weak one in the area of food or drink or clothing or entertainment? If you do, the answer is not to go against your conscience, but to train your conscience by the Word of God so that it can be strong and so that you can live in the freedom that God has purchased for you. Now go back to Genesis 42.1. Look at this verse again. It says, Now Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, and Jacob said to the sons, Why are you staring at one another? Now, at this point, do you think these brothers had a weaker conscience? Were their guilty stares appropriate, or was this a false guilt? Well, the answer is fairly obvious. Their consciences were working well. They had planned to kill their brother, remember? Then they sold him into slavery. Then they lied about him dying. They were guilty as charged. Now, how was God going to awaken their conscience? By confronting them with the trial of want. Look at verses 2. Verse 2, it says this. He said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us from that place so that we may live and not die. The first step towards this goal of affecting this, their conscience, was to bring along a famine. Now, Egypt is a place that these brothers never would have gone on their own. In fact, I'm probably thinking that when the word Egypt came up, the first thing they thought was, there is no way I'm going down there. No way. Why? Because they might run into Joseph. They might run into Joseph, and that would have been pretty awkward, right? to run into him and say, why did you guys sell me into slavery and all that? So they refused to go down there. The only way to drive them from their home of contentment in Canaan was by giving them a major physical need. And notice what it says in verse 2. It says, if you don't go down there, you're going to die. So it was either stay in Canaan or basically go to Egypt or die, right? So they had to face their conscience. And God uses this famine to awaken the brother's conscience. And God has been using this trial of want in many people's lives for thousands of years. In fact, he used it in the life of Jonah the prophet. You remember Jonah the prophet? Jonah was told to go to Nineveh in the first chapter of his book. He was told to go to Nineveh. 
And what did he do? He didn't want to go to Nineveh because he hated the Ninevites. They were God's enemy. They were enemies of Israel, so he didn't want to go. So what did he do? He got in a boat, and he took off and went in the opposite direction of Nineveh. And as he was traveling in the boat, what happened? A storm came at sea, and the the boat was about ready to sink. So he was thrown overboard, and as he's about ready to drown, a large fish swallows him, and he's in the belly of this fish for three days and three nights, and this indeed was a trial of want. You know, what did Joseph need at this point? Well, I'm sure he needed water, not salt water, fresh water. And God used this trial of want to bring Jonah to an end of himself, to tweak his conscience, and to drive home his sin of rebellion so that he would turn around and go preach to the Ninevites. And God was doing the same thing to Joseph's brothers when they faced this trial of want in the famine in their land. Now let's look at point three, which is the love of God. Um, look at, look at uh, verse five of chapter 42. So the sons of Israel came to buy grain among those who were coming. For the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Now, look at verse 5 again, and it says, Who are the those, who are the those that were coming along with the brothers? Were, this, were they all people from Canaan? Or were they people from somewhere else? Well, look back at the end of chapter 41, in verse 57, and it says this, The people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. I mean, the the famine was severe in all the earth. So this, this famine wasn't just in Egypt. It wasn't just in Canaan. It was all over the earth. And you think, why? Why was it all over the earth? Now think about this. So the brothers could go nowhere else. God confined them so that they could only go to Egypt. God made it so that they could only go to their brother. God made it so that they could only go to their Savior. Joseph, remember, was a type of Christ. And here we see these brothers being drawn to Egypt. That was the only place they could go. They were being drawn to their brother. Being drawn to their Savior. It reminds me of verse... uh, 37 in John chapter 6, it says this, All that the Father give me come to me, and all who come to me I will in no wise cast out. That's what Jesus was saying, that God had a plan to send His elect to the Son, and all that came to the Son He would no wise cast out. And this is a beautiful picture of the love of God. Think of this. God turned the world upside down. 
upside down for these ten brothers to get them to go to Joseph. The brothers came to Joseph for salvation because Joseph was a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. This trial of want pricked their conscience, which drove them to repentance. It drove them to us. You know, and it kind of reminds me of the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. You remember the story. The prodigal goes to his father. The son goes to his father. And he asks for all of his inheritance. And then what does he do? He goes into a far-off land, far-off country, and he spends it all. He blows it all on wild living, right? And then after that happens, there's a famine in the land, and he begins to starve to death. And he's getting food from nobody. So he starts doing this job, and, and this blows my mind. Here's a Jewish boy feeding pigs. Now that's probably the lowest you can get, you know, for a Jewish person, is to take a job feeding pigs. And he longed for the food that he was feeding these animals. So this trial of want drives this man to see his sin and to see his need of repentance. So what does he say? I need to go home. I need to go home. So he does. And before he gets to his father, his father sees him coming. And what does he do? What a wonderful picture of God's love for us. He pulls up his robe. He runs to the son. He embraces him. He kisses him before the son even says anything. Before the son apologizes, before the son repents, he's already grabbing hold of him. And then the son says, you know, I've sinned. And the father forgives him and throws a party for him. Today, through the trial of want. Now, I know nobody in this room is probably wanting for food or water right now. But God can use other trials of want. It may be that you've been going to the Word and it's as dry as dust. Or maybe when you pray, you feel like your prayers are just hitting the ceiling and bouncing back. That can be part of the trial of one. And God can be using that, just like he did in the prodigal son's life, to help you to see, to prick your conscience, and to help you to see your need to turn back to him. Don't run from him like Jonah did, but turn to him. Turn to him, and he will come and embrace you in his loving arms. Let's pray together. We just thank you for your wonderful grace that allows us and helps us through the conscience and through the power of the Holy Spirit to see our sin. Because, Lord, if you weren't in us, we wouldn't see our sin. So even us seeing our sin is by your grace and your mercy. And you allow us to see it so that we can turn back to you and run to you and know that there's nothing else that will give us great joy except 
loving you and serving you and obeying you. Lord, help us to know that. Help us not to run from you like Jonah did or like Adam and Eve did and hid themselves in the garden. Lord, help us to run to you when our conscience is awakened and help us to come to you in repentance and faith. Lord, we thank you for the promise that you are quick to love and to forgive and to restore us to the joy of our salvation. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for the grace and mercy of the gospel. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.